Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Where the Dark Corners Are. Travels hostess. Tonight, I'm actually joined by the gang ish. Gang ish. Ish. We're missing the panda because he's still in his natural habitat. Japan. (laughs) Is that not where pandas are? No, pandas are from China. That's right. (laughs) But speaking of bears, we do have a. In 1995, in 1995, a team of paranormal travel podcasters found an abandoned cub in the haunted Arctic. After some kick-ass paranormal training and his first alien kill, he was ready. He was ready. So, if ghosts, serial killers, or monsters in the dark got you scared, don't hesitate to call the Polar Bear. The Polar And we have and Samantha and Sam. Yeah. And Sam. Boop, boop, boop. That is a fun intro for yeah, you. Longest intro ever. It, it is, yes. I love that we were not going to play it, but she just got so jacked when she accidentally hit it, she had to play it right now. <laughs> okay. So we're going to be closing out Michigan with uh, this. <sighs> Murder, just, uh, uh, just, and just sad murder. I mean, it's sad. You're looking at me like we know what we're talking mm-hmm. about. Right. This no. is a surprise for us too. We are the audience, <laughs> right? We've just buckled in. So, we're gonna dial it back to 1968 on Monday, July 22nd, after receiving a complaint about the horrid stench by a neighboring woman who was hosting a bridge party. What's a bridge party? It's oh a card game. Oh, okay. It's a card game. Little baby. <laughs> it's like little pigs and things that you do. All the old baby. ladies play it's it. A barbecue on a bridge. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> she complained that the stench was coming from the Robinsons' family cabin. And their family cabin, which was actually located about 100 feet from Lake Michigan. So we're talking prime cabin real estate. The caretaker a gentleman by the name of Chauncey Monty Bliss went to go check out the complaint. Chauncey Monty? Chauncey Monty Bliss. Okay. This being in the woods, he simply figured it was something dead. Something died underneath the cabin. He just has to get the carcass out. Doesn't he know he's in, like, the summer of serial killers? Isn't that when most of them were popping up in, like, 60s, 70s? I couldn't tell. I don't Mm. think they were thinking about that in Michigan. So as he approaches the house, he comes to realize that the stench is actually coming from inside the house. Naturally, he knocks on the door, and when he doesn't get an answer, 
He pries open the door via the door's molding to get inside. Now, he actually knows the family who owns this cabin. In fact, Chauncey built these cabins in these woods. So he knows them, knows the Robinsons, and the family consists of six. So Richard or Dick Robinson, he's 42. He works as a successful advertising executive. And as a side job or side scenario, he was the publisher slash owner of a magazine titled Impresario. Now, this is 68, so mom is a homemaker, you know, a domestic technician. Right. Can I ask a <laughs> quick question? The cabins, are they kind of like the Keddy, Keddy cap camp cabins where they're all just like no, people are living in them, but one person kind of oversees them? So with this family, they actually lived more in the Detroit area. Okay. For the most of the year. During the summer months, it sounds like this was their summer vacation. Okay. They would come and hang out and be a family. Okay. Gotcha. And I do think, I mean, so let, let's get through the family and I'll, and I'll get back to what I kind of think here. So Shirley is the mom. She's 40. They have four children. So Richie is the eldest. He's 19. He's the eldest son who attends Eastern Michigan University. Their son, Gary, is 16. He's a student at Southfield Lamthrop High School. Randy, or Randall, is 12. And Susan is seven. Susan is their only daughter. Like I said, they lived in the Detroit area, but during the summer months they would come here. And the fact that the eldest son is with them, I think, kind of speaks to maybe that they were a bit of a tight-knit family. I mean, he's in college. He doesn't necessarily have to hang out with his family, but he's here. Well, to the same extent, I mean, the... I, I mean, I went to college, and I mean, we're close-ish. Don't get me wrong. We're pretty tight, but you don't really have much to do on the summers. You can try to go hang out with friends, but there's, it's not like there's cool places to go when your friends are all from Michigan either. Right, and it's 68. Right, so. So getting back to this July, he pries open the door, and he first comes upon Shirley. He sees her basically sprawled out in, in, in the room. And he sees that her clothes are basically disarray. And looking past her, Chauncey sees just a bunch of other bodies lying on the floor in pools of blood. He then books it and calls for law enforcement. So she's dressed, but her clothes are well, yeah, we're kind of disheveled. Kind of, we'll get to that. Law enforcement responds and... So the following is how they basically find the Robinsons one by one. And remember, I mean, we're talking well-to-do cabin house, home area. So Shirley is actually on her stomach on the floor. There's a plaid blanket covering her body from the knees up. And she's actually located in the southeast section of the living room. She was shot in the head once. A twenty-five caliber slug is found in the autopsy that happens. Her body is actually positioned intentionally to kind of give investigators the impression that this crime was a sexual attack. But again, it was just an an impression. It doesn't necessarily mean that's what happened. Does it go into a little bit more detail? Because you said blanket from knees up, so head covered? Um, I don't know. That's a great question. Because that shows the level of remorse just in general Correct. to cover them. Correct. Like uh, that you knew them. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you felt bad at least what for what you were doing right. in one way or another. Right. 
Richard is found on the floor in the hallway, and he's kind of hunched over what's called a hot air register. It's kind of like a vent, but it's covered. The vent is covered. Mm -hmm. But it's like a hot and air conditioner vent. And he was shot in the head once with twenty five caliber slug found in his first autopsy. And in addition to the bullet in the head, there are skull fractures and evidence of blunt force trauma. Now, he actually gets a second autopsy. And during the second one, they find a twenty two caliber slug in his chest. That's what I was going to say. You just you keep emphasizing the caliber of the bullet. And I was like, there's going to be more than one caliber. Right, because now we have two, which is odd in itself. Right. But was there any other signs of struggle on them, like defensive wounds? So we'll kind of get into that in a second. The investigators will come to the conclusion that he was initially shot in the chest with the twenty-two caliber rifle and then in the head with the pistol. To finish it. And eventually they come, kind of stepping ahead to answer your question, they come to the conclusion that he was the first target and he was shot through one of the windows of the cabin. So the perpetrator is outside with the rifle, and shot him in the chest. Like maybe he was looking out the window or something. Or sitting down. Right. Because yeah, to subdue two adults and then shoot them ex- execution style is pretty intense if you don't have them tied up and whatnot. So. Right. One of the things I will do is I will post a picture of the where the bodies were found in the cabin. The cabin is relatively small. It's a two-bedroom. And again, you know, the mom's found, the only one found in the living room is the mom. Right. So my assumption is the dad was standing near a window, got shot, and the mom maybe went to look to see or didn't understand what was happening. Right. And then she was attacked, followed by, because there are approximately three bodies in the hallway. So dad is one of them, and two other kids are in the hall. But the other two children are found in the bedroom. So speaking of that, Rich, the eldest kid, he's actually found in the northwest bedroom of the cabin. And he's actually partly in between like the hallway and the bedroom, so kind of in the doorway. His legs were extended into the hallway, and he had multiple gunshot wounds to the head, and we're talking 25 caliber slugs they find. Almost like he was going in to protect that other kid. Or running away. At least, so doing something to right. go away. Because, you know, the, the bedrooms are kind of in the back. So the entryway is in the living room where you find mom. Dad's in the hall where you find the other two. So Gary, the 16-year-old, he's found on his back along the east wall of the north bedroom. So, like, maybe Rich and Gary were Mm. the first to kind of realize something bad was happening and they were trying to get out through the bedroom, maybe. He had two gunshot wounds to the head. Both were twenty-five caliber slugs. And during his second autopsy, they found a twenty-two caliber slug and it was obvious that he had been shot in the back. So, again, he was probably running. Running away. Yeah. Probably trying to hide and or jump out a window. Now, Randy was found on top of his father, and Randy's 12. There, They find a lavender-colored rug from his shoulders down to his buttocks. And they list his cause of death as a gunshot wound to the head. But there are no bullets recovered during the autopsy. Susan, the youngest, was found lying on her back in the hallway, kind of south end of her father. She was shot in the face. Oh, a that's terrible. I she's know. seven, right? Oh. Yeah. 
A 25 caliber slug was found in her clothing that she was wearing. In addition to the gunshot, she had a skull fracture, which law enforcement believed was possibly from a claw hammer. Now, investigators will later determine that the shooting began outside the cabin and hitting maybe Dick first and the killer basically bursting in and then gunning down chasing everybody and getting people down. Right. And the thing is, is that I, I, when I was looking at the pictures of the, the, you know, the draw of all the bodies and stuff, it actually looks like there's two entrances to this cabin in the living room area, but I can't really tell. It's kind of like cut off in the bottom. So I don't know if it's a window that I'm looking at at the bottom or if it's another door, I suspect it's another door. So basically he, the person, just, you know, kills, hits the dad first and s- jumps in and starts killing everyone else, chasing them down. The killer will then close the curtains, lock the door, and then he turns up the heat. And he, the killer will place a piece of cardboard in the window where he first shot right. his rifle. So there is a hole in the glass. Right. Okay. That That's why they think... Mm-hmm. He shot through the window and shot the dad first. Now, law enforcement immediately gets in gets involved, and from what I can tell, they do a very good job. And <laughs> that's the first, <laughs> right? Especially every time then. we tell a story, like oh, they trampled all the evidence. They let everyone walk through the crime scene. But this, they do a very good job. Now, the first question is: is who would want to do something like this? So, are we talking? Do you said it earlier? Are we talking some rando serial killer? Or something a little more close to home. And I think the fact that he kind of covered up mom and covered up one of the children should suggest the perpetrator knew them. Yeah, and it's hard to think it would be a serial killer that would take out a whole family. You know, serial killers are normally pretty specific in their types. They want, like, a couple or, you know, the woman or whatever because they have a specific rage problem. Right, there's an M.O. that they... Do right, but to take out a whole family, I mean, it's very personal. Like in the past, not always, but in the past, when we talked about serial killers, they usually lock the kids up in the bathroom. I was going to say they don't want to kill the kids; that's not their thing, right? But I mean, has happened. We're not saying it hasn't. We're just saying they take out a whole family. It's just more rare for them to take out a whole family. That feels way more personal. And like shooting a little girl in the face is—that's straight up rage, mm -hmm. like. Hammering her with a hammer claw. Through their investigation, law enforcement comes to believe that the family was actually gunned down 27 days prior to June 25th because that was the last time the family was seen or heard from. I mean, they look at a broad spectrum of things, and they're like, again, who wants these people dead? Who's angry enough to kill these people? Right. And... They learn that on June 25th, Richard actually speaks to his bank and learns that a lot of money is missing from the account. He calls his office just furious, and he demands to speak to Joseph Scalaro, his assistant to the, to the magazine that he was owner and publisher of. And he's like, where the fuck is the money? And they know this because the receptionist who was fielding the calls was like, he was really pissed and he wanted to know where the money was. Right. And we're talking in the in the ballpark of sixty thousand dollars, 
And in 1968, we're talking by today's standards. It's a lot more than $60,000. Yes, we're talking a little over a m- half a million dollars. So. it's a lot. They get into a shouting match. They're screaming and yelling. They hang up. And Joseph Scarlaro ups and leaves the office at 1030. Okay. And he is not seen again by a viable or living witness until 11 p.m. when he comes to his house in Birmingham. So more than 12 hours later. Correct. Later on, the law enforcement will interview his wife, and she will tell law enforcement that this was the first time in six years that she had been married to him that he did not call or turn up in time for dinner. Gave him the opposite of an alibi. Right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> this bitch, She's not helping let me him. tell you. So I cooked dinner. He didn't come yeah, home. Yeah, she was mad. <laughs> yeah, she's just throwing him right under the bus. So, he again, he has no alibi. And as you said before, 12 hours, quick quick bath there. It gives him ample time to go out to, this place is located in Goodart, Michigan. So he's got enough time to get there and back. And the thing about Scolaro was he was actually one of the very few people who actually knew how to find this remote cabin in the woods because he had actually been there before. Mm. So knowing that he did not have an alibi, the police administer not one, n- not two, but three lighter detector tests. He fails the first two, and the third one is inconclusive. And his alibi for the night of the murders is actually never substantiated. In addition to that, Scalaro was a former military sharpshooter in the Army. So he had knowledge of guns, and he knew how to sharpshoot and kill people. And the location, and a motive for murder, et cetera, et cetera. But here's where it gets even. I just, well, we haven't gotten there. When we do, you'll understand why I'm just like, oh, my God. We're ready. God. Blow our minds. <laughs> he also owned two 25-caliber Jetfire automatic Beretta pistols, and he owned two... 22 caliber AR7 Amarlite semi-automatic rifles. Both guns had been purchased by Scalaro on the same day, February 2nd, 1968. And in addition to these guns, investigators learned that Scalaro also purchased some Thaco ammunition, which was ammunition from Finland on the same day, February 2nd. And the thing was is that Scalaro was one of the very few people to have purchased this type of ammunition at a limited time sell between January and February. Mm-hmm. So, so rare and only sold at a certain time. Correct. Now, besides the slugs that were pulled from the body during the autopsy, law enforcement actually finds four twenty-two caliber spent shells at the cabin murder scene. Law enforcement then takes these shells and forensically compares them by their ballistic markings to several 22 caliber evidence shells known to have been fired by Scalero because Scalero would like to go to a family-owned firing range. His mm-hmm. father-in-law owned a firing range, so he would go and he'd shoot. And so they picked up the shell casings that they knew that he had fired mm-hmm. and left behind. And two of the sets of shells were said to be an exact match. Now, when asked about the current whereabouts, Scarlaro was like, I just gave them away. I gave them away. But in contradiction to this, law enforcement learns from a neighbor that the neighbor himself had seen the twenty two caliber AR-7 rifle in Scarlaro's house not long before the Robinsons were killed. 
Well, so also, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but an AR in 1968 would probably not have been common weaponry that the normal person, average person, would buy. So, <laughs> and you're just going to give that away? Right. Do you and know the Americans? I know Americans <laughs> now, but I can almost guarantee that an AR wasn't the type of thing we were buying back then. Because know. the same thing is with the Beretta automatic pistol. He's just, just giving them away. Right, and Berettas are expensive. In addition to all of this, law enforcement also finds several Seiko 25 caliber spent cartridges in the cabin. Again, it's the same rare Finnish brand that was only sold for a limited time in Michigan at the murder scene. Nice. So you have matching <laughs> forensics. It's kind of dumb. And you have knowledge that he bought this Finnish type of ammunition. And you know what he tells law enforcement what he did with that ammunition? He gave it away. Gave it away. He gave it away. As a present. I mean, he literally has the smoking gun, but it's fine. We'll just pretend like that's not happening. I gave away the smoking gun because okay. I'm a good friend. In addition to the shells and the calibers and the slugs, they find. One bloody footprint left on the floor in the cabin. And would you believe that the bloody footprint actually matches a pair of Scalero's shoes? That he gave away to his brother? To do. That's <laughs> it. That's it. No. Mystery's over. No. <laughs> oh, come on. What they did was is they looked through his shoes and they find this pair. And they're like, this is still brand new. Obviously never been worn. And at first it doesn't look like a good piece of evidence until that they learned Scalero had a habit of buying two of everything. That's how come there were two rifles, two Berettas, two sets of boots. In fairness, I am the same person. If I find a pair of jeans I like, I'm buying the same pair because if it wears out and I can't get them again, I'm going to be pissed. Well, that in a different color, if, well, it, if it works. I'm going to get two pairs of the same color, two more pairs of a different color, two more pairs of a different <laughs> color. But I'd also like to ask, did the wife turn over the shoes since she's diamond him out anyway? She's no. like, oh, here's some <laughs> shoes. And by the way, he has another pair. You know, I actually don't know what happens to their marriage after this happens. Probably nothing good. <laughs> Run for your life, lady. Correct. I don't know how well I would sleep if my husband was charged or it was thought that he killed six people and four of them were children. Got but it. either way. It's right or die. Right. <laughs> So, he only has one pair of these boots, and it's perfectly clean, but he had the habit of buying two of everything. Now, as part of the investigation, a forensic unit actually audits the Robinson's company, this, the, the magazine, and it's determined that money begins to get drained from the businesses right after Scarlaro gets hired on. And in December 1969, almost a year after the Robinsons are murdered, investigation the investigators, law enforcement, presents their case to the prosecutions in hopes of charging one Joseph Scalaro III for this horrendous crime. All of it. But here's what happened. Get charged. But the Emmett County prosecutors decide not to prosecute. Why? That's a great I question. I don't know. It's like, I don't even want to talk about <laughs> tell this me, now. Tell me, tell me why. So angry. According to a gentleman by the name of Richard Smith, who was the Emmett County prosecutor at the time of the slayings, says this, and I'm quoting him. I think, number one, the county wasn't interested in the cost. I think they could have afforded it, but they weren't interested in the cost. And then Oakland County determined that they could bring their murder charges there. I think that relieved a lot of people in Emmett County that they would not have the cost, the expense, and the publicity of a trial taking place here. 
which p- trying to probably pull a jury in that area would be difficult. And, you know, I get it. It is a lot of money to run a trial. It's really hard to pull a jury together. But, well, I mean, part of the <laughs> problem is that. Sorry about your family. We don't have the money. Well, we don't like want to spend the money. Yeah, and legi- and there's children, first right. and foremost. A seven-year-old shot in the face. I mean, let's not get her justice. But then, I mean, did you need more evidence? This seems pretty open and shut. Yes, she didn't have taken exactly. Very long, so Thank you. It's not like it was a questionable trial. Right. What ends up happening five years later in 1973, Oakland County prosecutors, and this is still in Michigan because part of what's happened is, is you do have two types of crimes. People don't understand this sometimes, but typically speaking, when it comes to crimes happening in certain areas, that county has jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. However, because the Richards because the Robinsons lived in Oakland County, and I think some of the crime, like the embezzlement crime, was happening, they were able to reopen the case with their own investigation, because that's exactly what happens in 73. And they look at the embezzlement accusations, and they're like, this is the precursor to the murders. I still don't love that, because crime should be jurisdictional. There should be s- two separate cases based on what's going on. Like... If you have someone that commits a state crime and a federal crime, normally one takes the person first and then the next person just waits for that person to come to them so that they can do the same thing, essentially. Right. But Emmett County is like, no, we're not doing it. Well, and if they petition for change of venue, I'm sure that potentially they could couple them together. It just seems weird. And five years later. Right. I mean. Again, law enforcement had their shit together and had basically handed them, here's your guy. 100%. Here's who we think did it. Here's all the evidence. And I, I'm i going to be honest. If I was sitting on a jury and I heard this, you're guilty. Mm-hmm. And we almost let it go cold to some extent. Like, that, sh- that sucks. I right. Love it. Five years later. So, Joe Scalero hears that Oakland County is going to prosecute. But before they can issue a warrant and arrest him. He offs himself. On March 8th, <laughs> 1973. No way. They get a phone call. Such a good guesser. That Joe Scalero committed suicide with a 25 caliber Beretta. He shot himself in the head. Mm-hmm. And he leaves a suicide note in which he says, I'm innocent. And I quote, P.S. I had nothing to do with the Robinsons. I'm a cheat, not a murderer. This man is like textbook. That is how this comes to it's a second. It's crazy. I mean, even I've, it's the end. I mean,. What if he didn't do it? I don't think you I commit <laughs> suicide if you're innocent. Correct. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm in that boat. Well, <laughs> an embezzlement, I mean, is not going to carry an it's like a significant charge. And honestly, I don't know, but I do know this. As for the unfortunate murder scene, the cabin itself, because the blood and the horrid stench of their decomposing bodies would not clean up, would not dissipate. The cabin actually had to be demolished after the investigation. Well, also, that's bad juju. Do you really want to go in this there? This is true. Absolutely, it's bad juju. I, I, <laughs> I mean, it's like going to the Katie murders, going back and living in that. No, thank you. Well, there's lots of, cr- like the um, Elizabeth Borden house or whatever. Like, why would you want to go back to a place Amityville. like Amityville. Actually, I just read today, a Amityville house is back on the market if of our course. listeners are, are interested. But it's like, so why memorialize something like that? Right. Nothing. A little lice fall can't fix. Right. 
<laughs> I mean, the ghosts. <laughs> it's a whole different he, he story. He sounds like he's speaking from experience. <laughs> I don't know. Just out of curiosity, since you're a professional ghost hunter now, <laughs> do <laughs> ghosts he's a professional alien killer? Right? Alien do killer. ghosts go away with Lysol, or are they mm-hmm. just what? What is it about Lysol that makes the ghosts go away? The chemicals. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's what we have for you tonight. On to business. Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Go on, continue. <laughs> you did so good. <laughs> we have a Facebook page where the dark corners are. Post. Sign on. Tell us what you think. What else do we do on Facebook? We have an email. Oh, That's yeah. always important. The longest me- Michael's email not ever. here to care yeah, about the email today. I, I will I will take a stand. <laughs> <laughs> Where the dark corners are at gmail.com. Jeez. Reach if out. <laughs> right. If you have a topic or a serial killer you want someone to cover, send us a request. Final thoughts, Samantha? I mean, there's really no thoughts for that. I'm just absolutely horrified that... It took them that long. And also that while they had this open and shut case that he's just out on bail and able to live his life. Yeah. And to then take his own life and rob everybody of justice and closure on that. Because they're they're still parents, cousins, uncles, brothers, sisters that are suffering because of that. And what you're saying is actually true. People are are have written books that are still very vibrant today. I mean, people are hosting conversations and people are coming to listen to the speaker speak on this. This very this series of murders. So, yes, what you're saying is very much relevant, even we're talking 50 years ago from, yeah. from then. Well, we also, we often think that just that there are six of them and those were the victims, but there are so much more. There's the circles. And this kid's 19 years old going to college. All of his friends that he didn't return to that found out about this horrible thing they struggled with that. Right. All of the kids' high school friends struggled with that. Well, even law enforcement. When you do a really good job and right. someone else drops the ball, that is like smacking you in the face. When you've done your job and someone else shits on that, right. that's fucking hard to swallow. All because people didn't want to spend, spend the money. money. And that just, I, I think that hurts the most in my heart, that the system failed them. When they had everything that they needed. Correct. Panda. Or oh. <laughs> well, that's never happened. She just normally calls thro- Panda yeah, Polar Bear. Throwing out names. She just misses him. Name calling. Chewy, where's your father? <laughs> <laughs> polar Bear? Um, I don't know. That was a really good story. But yeah, I, I agree with Sam with the, you know, the friends and the family of the family. Even like any traumatic event, you don't know how it affects any, somebody. Like there's a, there's this thing called, it's like a sympathetic Essentially, I, I, don't, I forgot forgot the term of it, but it's essentially like sympathetic PTSD. Like you didn't really go through the event, but somebody told you about it, and they might have thought it wasn't a big deal. But in your head, you just recreated the event, and that traumatized you more than it actually traumatized that person. But I mean, in this case, it's, I mean they all died, so that was terrible. But then the aftershock that it had on the family, friends, like oh shit, they got murdered in their own cabin. Uh, right, and it's in a, a safe place. Yeah. Well, and it rippled out, and lots of people had probably been up there to visit them. I mean, it's just it's just tragic that yeah. this is what it came to. All right. So until next time, please remember, only the few can find the beauty in the darkness, which is why we hope to meet you where the dark corners are. Both guns were purchased on Scarlaro.
<laughs> on Scalaro. <laughs> <laughs> Bloopers. <laughs>